As some of you know, a month ago, um, we went to youth camp. First ever GCV youth-led youth camp. This was really awesome. Woo -woo. And, <laughs> and we had a blast over the course of four days. Zana, did we have a blast? It was a good. Over the, over the course, I, I have one of my students in here, so I can, I can take him, right? Maybe you can help me during this, this service. <laughs> um, so over the course of the four days that we were in Gordon, Texas, at the seven-hour range, we had pool, we had a lot of fun activities, games. We had a talent night that was not embarrassing at all for any of us. <laughs> um, we just had a blast, but we also... <laughs> One of the things that was really important to us, obviously, is Jesus, right? It's important for us when we go on camp that it's not just about the fun and the relationships, even though these are important, and we really focus on these too, and obviously, really healthy food. <laughs> but something we really focus on as well is Jesus, and spending time with one another in worship, with God, um, spend in reflection time, spend in group time, and spend in sessions. And over the course of six sessions in those four days, we went through the topic of not a fan. How to be a completely committed follower of Christ. And today I thought, let's put all of those six sessions all and squeeze them together into one session today for you. So you get the benefit as well to learn a tiny bit of what the students have learned. And for you parents that had students that were there, you can talk to them at home afterwards and ask them questions about the things that you didn't get to hear today and see how much they can recall. And if you didn't have students that were there, still, you can still have these conversations. I think these are still good conversations. Six hour sermon. Yes, yeah, six hour sermon. <laughs> Who wants it? <laughs> A few heads are there. Wow. <laughs> so before we start, let me pray really quickly and then we can dive right into the topic of what it means to not be a fan. Father, I want to thank you so much that you are looking for followers, people that are close to you. And um, I pray that you speak right now through me and that all of us can hear what you really say. That's not my words, but your words coming through this, that I'm speaking straight from the Bible and that you get to speak to every single one individually in our hearts and that we get to grow closer to you. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. I want to start with a story in John 6. In John 6, we hear the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember the story? Yes, yeah, the story that we grew up in Sunday school with, right? Um, it's kind of misleading at times. It's the feeding of 5,000. Well, it's 5,000 men, so it's probably more like 15,000 people if you include children and women as well. So 15,000 people-ish that were fed by Jesus with two fish five loaves of bread. This miraculous story of how God just fed the multitudes of people and how the disciples got to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ, even though there was this emergency panic situation, they got to rely on Jesus and in this moment he taught them about this. But I want to talk about what happened afterwards. Once they all were fed, they all started to like get ready for bed Right, because there was this discussion if they should send them home because there's no food. But Jesus said, "No, let them camp here." Right, and then he uh, he multiplied the food. Everyone was camping, resting for the night. And then Jesus sends disciples across the lake with a boat. Jesus stays behind on the mountain praying, 
Then a big storm happens. The disciples were in distress. Jesus walks on water. Another miraculous situation where Jesus is showing the disciples how to have faith. But then when they arrive on the other side in the next morning, the people were still left behind, the 15,000 people. And they woke up and it's like, Jesus is not here. And they all follow along. They all look for Jesus. They're searching for Jesus. And this is where we get to the later parts of John 6. And I encourage you to read the whole chapter. I'm actually leaving out a lot of verses here. Read them for yourself. Look into the gold nuggets that are in there. I'm kind of doing an abbreviated version. But in John 6, verse 26 and 27, Jesus talks to the crowd and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So he's starting to call the crowd out, saying, you're only following me because of the food that I'm giving you. It's not even... And when he says the sign, he means the sign of Jonah. It's, a, it's about himself, right? They're not looking that he is the true Messiah. All they cared about is the food. All they cared about is what they can get out of Jesus, right? And then Jesus says, a couple of verses later in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For us, it's kind of a no-brainer. Like, yeah, Jesus is the bread of life. Like, that's why we have communion, right? But in that time, they were like, what? What are you saying, Jesus? Like, they literally say in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They are literally thinking that Jesus is offering his actual flesh. And because all they're still thinking is food. They're not hearing what Jesus is saying actually to those people. That it's about him giving up his life eventually, right? And he's being cryptic as he usually is because he wants those that really seek him to be able to hear and those that are just surface level to miss it. And then in verse 66 and 67, we see after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? So Jesus is calling them out, and he's essentially saying one thing, you are just fans of me. But what I want is true followers. I want people that stick with me, and I'm not just there for the gifts, for the goodies. So what exactly is a fan. What exactly is a follower? I brought a picture for y'all. <laughs> if I'm thinking of a fan, I'm thinking of Pastor Dave being a massive Cowboys fan, right? Has, did anybody not know that Pastor Dave loves the Cowboys? I think everybody knows, right? Pastor Dave loves the Cowboys. And he always watches all of the games. And he, like, if I'm thinking of a fan, I'm thinking of him, right? And being a fan of sport is amazing. But what is a fan? A fan is someone that is invested as long as it doesn't cost them something. 
they're sitting on the couch and maybe even go to the stadium, but a fan doesn't go and play the game, right? A fan is not involved in the actual sport. A fan maybe knows a whole bunch about the players. Like if I was to ask Pastor Dave about any of the Cowboy players, he would be able to tell me everything. The statistics, the history, which school they went into, everything. I don't even know the name, so <laughs> he could tell me a whole bunch of things and I wouldn't be able to verify it. But a fan knows a whole bunch of things about the players, but a fan doesn't know the players personally. Maybe, maybe there's an exception. You went with one of the players in the same high school or something. There's an odd exception, right? But in general, a fan doesn't know the players. For a fan, the sport is just one out of many things. Right? You watch the, sh you watch the football game, and then when the football game is over, you turn the TV off, maybe change to a different channel, and you go back to your, the rest of your life. And didn't impact you in any other way. A fan will strictly argue the rules, even often heavily disagree with the referee. Yep. <laughs> People know that feeling, yeah. <laughs> Referee, you did this wrong. No, why did you do that flag? No, what? Fans really know the rules of their game, right? The thing is, being a fan of a sport is okay, but Jesus didn't want fans of himself. Jesus wanted people that are completely committed followers. He wants people that are willing to risk something and not just sit at the sideline. He wants people that know him personally and not just a lot about him. He wants people that, where he is that one and only and not just one thing out of many. It's like if you think about having a spouse, that spouse is your one and only, right? You can't say, hey, we still do our date nights on Tuesdays, but on Fridays and Saturdays I might see other women. You wouldn't do that. She is your one and only. He is your one and only, right? There's no one beside them. And Jesus wants to be the same thing. He wants to be our one and only. Jesus wants us to have a deep commitment, not just a one-time decision. There are many Christians out there that went one time in their life... Did the altar call and said, "Yes, I want to be. Yes, I want to be a Christian. I want. I, I, I want Jesus to be my savior." But for the rest of their life, it doesn't impact them in any other way. It was just a one-time decision, not a deep commitment. Jesus wants a relationship more than he wants rules. That's why he died on the cross. So he he did, he fulfilled all of the rules. But then he died on the cross so that these rules could not keep us from him anymore. Right? And he wants followers that are empowered by the Holy Spirit and not empowered by their own human strength, in quotation marks, their own human weaknesses. Each of those things I just said, by the way, were a point during, like, like a deeper point during our camp. Like the whole day two, we've talked about these things. And I've just gone really briefly over them. So these are good things to ask questions about. <laughs> but in Matthew 7, verse 23, 
he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are people that think that they will go to heaven. They think they know God, but ultimately God says, I never knew you. Think of it like the president of the United States. And one day you're invited to, uh, like, to something, um, and then you go to, up to the president and are like, hey, Mr. President, can I stay in your house? I have done so many things in your name and the name of the United States. The president will be like, who, who are you? <laughs> I don't even know you. Why should I let you into my house? Nice, thank you for doing these things for me. But I don't know you, right? Do we know God and does God know us? Do we have this deep relationship with him? So... On day three, we focus really heavily on one verse. And that's what I want to focus the rest of my time on. But before I go to that verse, I want to go to the most popular verse in the whole of the universe. John 3, verse 16. Everyone knows that. Even non-Christians know that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Everybody knows that verse, right? This is the gospel verse. This is the verse that we say, like this summarizes the gospel, the best in one sentence. And it's an amazing verse, and I think it shows one part of the gospel. One part. It shows the part where we say God is our savior. But there's another part, saying God is our Lord. Remember, we want to have God as our Lord and savior, and we've been talking about this actually all year even in the men's Bible study, we have been going very deep about this as well. But So there's another verse that can help us with this other part, God being our Lord. And that verse is Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Again, it's about this little part, follow me. But I want to go briefly through each of those four sections and see what do these mean? What do these mean for us personally? Anyone? I want to tell the story of this woman. and She has been um, looking on Facebook Marketplace and other shopping sites. She has been looking at different stores and one day she finds it. She finally finds this gorgeous white couch. Beautiful. Amazing. It's perfect. Because she has already a perfect room that this couch will fit into. And this room is, has white curtains, a white carpet, white walls. She already has white cushions. And this couch is going to be the centerpiece of this room. Right? And then she gets all her children and, and tells them, I don't want you to be in this room. This is mommy's room. Because she knows children and whites don't mix well. Just any spot, any blemish, it is going to look, or it's going to stick out forever, right? So she tells him that. And one day, and you probably know where I'm going with this, one day she finds a stain on her couch. But I wasn't on the top side. One of the cushions was flipped over. They were, 
someone was hiding the stain that they made on the couch. That's what we do when we make stains in our lives, right? We hide them. So the mom got all the children together, and then she asked, who has made the stain? And after an intense few minutes of silence, when no one was saying anything, suddenly the daughter broke down. She ran up the stairs crying. The mom and the dad followed her, tried to find her. She was hiding in a closet, sitting in the corner, crying. The mom asked, did you do the stain? Yes, mom. And then the daughter asked something. Mom, do you still love me? Before I tell you what the mom says, I'm going to do a Markham sandwich. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt with another story and come back to the story afterwards. This story is a story of Matthew. Okay? If you remember, Matthew in the Bible was a tax collector. And Matthew, a, a tax collector, was usually not liked by the other Jews. A tax collector worked, worked for Rome and was collecting the taxes, right? Which means they, they were forcing the people to give the money to Rome, the evil empire that's ruling over them. Tax collectors usually took even more money from the people for themselves. So tax collectors really weren't liked by Jews at all. And the fact that he was a Jew himself didn't make that any better. What a betrayer, right? Matthew had another name. His other name was Levi. Levi suggests that his parents probably hoped him to be a servant of God. Like the Levites, right? He maybe a temple servant of some kind. But maybe at some point during during his education system, maybe at some point he failed in that striving. And instead he became a tax collector for Rome. What a disappointment for his parents. That's why he probably called himself Matthew not Levi, because he didn't want to carry that disappointment around with him. But then Jesus comes along, and he does something that rabbis don't usually do, and he seeks out his students instead of the students seeking out him. And he goes to Matthew, and he knows that Matthew wouldn't come to Jesus because Matthew already thinks of him as a disappointment. He isn't worthy in God's eyes. But Jesus comes to Matthew instead, and says, follow me. Me? You want me to follow you? And Matthew rose and followed him. If you actually have watched the, the series The Chosen, I really recommend it. It really amazingly depicts the scene of where Matthew is just like lost for words but then runs after Jesus. It's, remember this, so The Chosen, I really love it. Remember, it's an interpretation, but they try to stick as close to the Bible as possible, and the gaps where we don't know anything, they try to fill it with their own, like, interpretation and artistic style. So remember, it's a series, it's an interpretation of the Bible, not actually the Bible, but it's amazing. I have enjoyed myself watching it a lot. I know a few here, others have as well. But Matthew 
the disappointment or thinking that he was a disappointment was reached out by Jesus saying, follow me. And he happily went after him. Mom, do you still love me? Do you know what her response was? You could never make a big enough stain to keep me from loving you. When I heard this, I was like, oh, <laughs> so beautiful. <laughs> but that is us. We make stains in our lives all the time. But there's nothing that we can do that keeps God's love away from us. So this invitation to be his followers is not just for some people. It is for anyone. It is for everyone. It is for you too. That is this first part. Anyone. The next part is come after. And the term come after in this Bible verse suggests a loving pursuit. Like when a husband or when a man pursues a woman and is trying to woo her and tries to get her attention and tries to impress her, right? That is this type of coming after. And sometimes we have crazy stories of what, what happened when we went after our lady or when she came after us. These crazy stories that we have, right? But the question is, do we have these types of stories with God as well? Do we have crazy coming after stories? I mean, he came after us and that's the crazy story of all. And it ended with him dying on the cross and rosing again to life for us. That's a very crazy story, but do we have a story of us coming after him? In Genesis 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew Eve. And it was not just a head knowledge. It was a time bit more intimate. And we know that because the verse after, or the same verse, it says, and she conceived. That's a very big jump, like, I know you, and she conceives. <laughs> so it's very intimate, right? It's a very intimate knowledge. The word that's used here is yada, um, the uh, Hebrew word yada. It's actually used throughout the whole, whole of the Old Testament. But it can also give us an example of how God wants us to know him. In Deuteronomy 4.35, I hope I said that right. This word is always so difficult for me. Uh, to you, it was shown that you might know, yada, the Lord your God. There's no other beside him. God wants, to know, wants us to know him intimately, deeply, in a close relationship. When... When we get into a relationship, though, when we get married, something that happens, though, as those that did get married know, is when you move together, you combine households, right? Person A has a household, person B has a household. If both of them have been living alone already for a while, and person B does not have a um, significant amount of furniture, that's maybe a red flag. Just saying, right? <laughs> if the person doesn't have a whole lot of things, even though they were living on their own for a while, maybe they're still eating their cereal on the floor, that is a red flag. <laughs> but in, in the normal case, you, you combine households, right? And what happens when you combine households is you have two things of everything. You have two living room TVs, you have two dining tables, 
You have two times the set of chairs that you would need. So what do you do? You need to pick and choose what of those things you keep. You need to take things away, get rid of some things. Because here's the thing, when we get married, we can't just have the benefits without also making certain sacrifices. There's certain sacrifices that we need to suddenly make in our lifestyle and the way that we live, because suddenly we live with another person and we have to adjust to that. But these certain there's certain sacrifices that also happen when we want to be in a deep relationship with God. And I think they're really good depicted in those two next things. Deny himself and take up his cross. Last time I spoke, I, I taught you about the rich young ruler. And how the rich young ruler had to learn that he needed to give up, in his case, the money, because the money was ultimately keeping him away from Jesus. The money was so strong in his life that if he would have kept it, it would have kept him away from the full potential of following Jesus. So Jesus says, this is the one thing that you're lacking, is give up your money. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And we learn that for us, sometimes we need to deny ourselves in certain ways in the same way. Because certain things will keep us from God. Especially those things that become God to us. It might be money. It might be our careers. It might be our hobbies. That's probably the most difficult part for me, being real here with you. Like, um, it might be certain friendships that are unhealthy. It might be even family in some way. There is... Tribes in Africa, when missionaries went to them, and they're telling them about Jesus, and these people want to follow Jesus, they start packing their stuff, and the missionaries are like, what are you doing? It's like, no, I need to pack my stuff. I can't stay in my tribe anymore, because they will not accept me here anymore when I follow Jesus. Sometimes following Jesus means that we need to give up even our family. Right? And these people understood that Jesus needs to be over family. Jesus needs to be over money. Jesus needs to be over careers. Jesus needs to be over addictions, over a house, over my freedom, over what people might think of me. Jesus needs to be over everything. The thing is, denying ourselves in this sense is actually the biggest evidence of love that we can give. If there's two Coke cans in the fridge. One is opened and one is unopened. And Becca gives me the unopened Coke can, the one that has more, more fizziness in it. Or she gives me the bigger out of the two cake pieces. I know how much she loves me, right? Because she's taking herself seconds in those situations, right? So denying ourselves is actually a massive evidence of how much we love someone. In the New Testament, the apostles always called themselves something very peculiar. They always called themselves slaves of Christ. Some translations try to make it a bit weaker. Oh, we don't like this word, slave. It, no, they're servants of Christ. But the word that they used was actually slave. And the word that they used for Jesus as their master was a master, like a master of a slave. Why did they do this? A slave doesn't have any possession of their own. Everything that they have belongs to the master. And for them, being a slave of Christ, they knew it was about like everything I have, 
everything that I own is his, right? But there's an even stronger concept, and that concept is in the Old Testament, and it's called a bond slave. And I'll explain in a second why I have a ear on the, on the, on the, on the thing. It's a bond slave. A bond slave is someone, so in the Old Testament, there was this concept of you can have certain slaves, but then after so many years, you need to release the slaves, right? They need to be freed. But sometimes these slaves would say, no, I want to stay with my master and their family. They would say this because they, the family loved them and they loved the family, and they knew the family was taking care of them, and they knew they would be better off as a slave with that family than being completely on their own, alone with freedom. So that what they would do is a symbol. They would go to the doorframe, and the master would come and pierce their earlobe against the doorframe. And it wasn't a nice, refined tool like we have nowadays. There were blunt tools back then, right? But they would pierce the earlobe against the doorframe. And it was a symbol that they are now forever stuck to this family and could never be released anymore. I'm now bond to this family as a slave. And the apostles constantly called themselves slaves for Christ. They chose to be slaves. When missionaries went to Suriname in South America, they, they saw slaves there and they wanted to evangelize to the slaves. But the master told them, you cannot talk to my slaves. Only other slaves can talk to my slaves. So these, uh, these missionaries, they thought of themselves already as slaves of Christ. So, sure, I signed up as slave here so I can evangelize to them. Wow, that is, wow, that is crazy that you would yourself put yourself in the slavery of another person just so that you can evangelize to these people. But for them, the mindset was, I am already a slave of Christ. He's my ultimate master and him I trust, right? The thing is, we are always slaves either to sin or to Christ. We can't just be not slaves at all. We are either a slave of sin, a slave of sin, as the New Testament says, or we are a slave of Christ. But being a slave of Christ means we can truly find freedom. And God is our master. He will provide for us. He will protect us. He has the power to forgive us when we do something wrong. He gives us rest when we're worn out. Worn out. And the amazing thing is the New Testament also calls us his sons and daughters and his friends. We're not just staying on the level of slave. We're becoming sons and daughters of God because we have this close relationship to him. To deny ourselves does not just mean to give up some money. It means to give up. It means less of me, more of Jesus. And then we have the last part, to take up your cross daily. Why a cross? First of all, did you notice that he's saying this in Luke 9 is before Jesus was crucified? It's not one of the apostles afterwards saying we need to be crucified. No, it's Jesus already saying we need to take up our cross. 
And ultimately, we are supposed to imitate Jesus. And Jesus took up his cross, right? So Jesus was kind of hinting already on something that would happen to him, right? Just a fun thing that, uh, that stood out to me. But take up your cross daily. Why cross? The cross was a Roman tool. It was a unique way of killing people that was designed by the Romans. By the way, I'm just going to go on a little detour. Did you know the prophecy about the Messiah's pierced hands, or actually pierced hands, the Roman crucifixion was the only way of killing people in the entire history of humanity that would involve piercing the hands? So, when that happened to Jesus, and that was a fulfillment of one of the prophecies, the prophecy that was way before anyone killing anyone by piercing their hand, they must have thought with a prophecy like, piercing their hand, how do you kill someone with that? But the Romans did it, and that was the first and only time that it happened. Isn't that crazy? Can you just, like, isn't that crazy how, like, how awesome our God is lining all of this up? But it was a Roman tool, and it was a Roman tool that was a symbol for the Romans' power and strength. Sometimes they would crucify as many as 2,000 people at a time. 2,000. That is a, that's huge. It's also a symbol of humiliation, because the types of people that they would crucify are rebels, and false kings. That's why the Jewish leaders kept insisting that Jesus is saying that he's a king of the Jews. That's why this, this thing said it over his head on the cross, the king of the Jews. They wanted to humiliate those people that tried to suburb the power of the Roman Empire and show them you have no power and we crucify you to humiliate you and to show everybody that you have no power. Jesus rose again, and the cross had no power over Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Another thing is, the cross was a symbol of suffering. The Romans were experts in doing their crucifixions. And actually, even before you get crucified, they would beat you up so badly that you're already on the brim of death. What they would do is they take strips of leather, like a whip, and they put on those ends glass shards and little metal hooks. And they would whip them. Jesus got whipped 40 times with those. And then what happens is they dig into the skin as they whip them. And then they rip them out. This is nasty. The, the backs of these people were unrecognizable. You can see bone parts and stuff like this. Top level skin is gone. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's gruesome. It's horrible. But if you have seen The Passion of Christ, the last time I've seen it was, I think I was a teenager. I've not been able to stomach watching it again because it's just so gruesome. I've seen a review online of someone saying, oh, this movie, like, why did they have to make it so awful and so horrible? There's not even creative freedom anymore. I'm like, it's supposed to show how awful it was. It's not an imagination. That's how it actually was. How horrible this whole process was. And then almost, beat, like the way that they're beaten up, Jesus was almost dying already then. And they, they put these crown thorns on his head. And then when these little thorns, like we know from a rose bush, these were really big thorns that they put and like stab into your head. Right? 
And they beat them up, they spit at them, they do all sorts of things. And then Jesus has to carry the cross. A 125-pound beam on his shoulders, all the way from Jerusalem to the mountain where he's going to get crucified. That's why he was breaking down on the way. And someone had to help him with that because he could not bear this anymore. It was, he was so weak at this point. And then he comes up to the mountain. They nail that beam to the upwards part of the cross. They nail your hands to the beam and your feet on a little wooden block on the, uh, uh, on the cross. And then they lift the cross up. And the way that you die is actually via suffocation. You couldn't breathe. The way that you have been mistreated and the way that you're hanging, you can't breathe. So what you do is on this little wooden block, you try to push yourself up so that you can inhale and then exhale. And eventually you are so weak that you can't push yourself up anymore. Sometimes people stay on the cross for, for several different days before they're dead. And if they wanted to speed up the process, they would break the legs so they couldn't push themselves up anymore. When the Romans wanted to break Jesus' legs, they noticed he was dead already. So they didn't break his legs, which was another prophecy fulfilled. It, this whole crucifixion scene, so many prophecies, it's incredible. But it's so horrible, this whole procedure, and they knew exactly what they were doing. And then to test if he was dead, they would put a spear to the, through the side, up onto the heart. I mean, if the crucifixion didn't kill them, the spear surely would have. The blood will pour out, and in Jesus' case, there was also a white liquid that, were, that came out that was a sign that was like plasma or some kind. That was a sign that he was actually dead, because otherwise it would have just been blood. Why am I saying all of these things? I'm saying this because carrying the cross will cause pain and suffering. Luke 6 verse 22 says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not you might be persecuted, not you might opt out of being persecuted, no, you will be persecuted. And Philippians 1 verse 29 says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is part of the role description. That in some sense, we will, we will need to suffer for him. The cross was also a symbol of torture and death. Many of the apostles died for their faith in Jesus. Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia. Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during a mission trip. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. 
Jesus didn't come to just change us. He came so that we could die to ourselves. That's partly what the, what the um, baptism symbolizes, that we die to our old lives and our new life as Jesus begins, right? That we're dying to ourselves, our human fleshly desires. He doesn't just want, want what we have. He wants us. He wants you completely and eternally. Not just a little fraction of us. He wants all of us. And the reason why he wants us dead is because a dead person is not longer concerned with their own life. And we ought to be completely and utterly concerned with God and his people. Right? And every day... We, can't, we have this responsibility to keep our commitment and say, yes, am I going to die again today? Sometimes when we evangelize people, we say, where would you be if you died tonight? Well, 90% of the times, these people don't die that night. They stay alive. But there's now this thing of, I do need to actually die to myself and start following Jesus every single day. Take up your cross Daily. So, what does this look like? Maybe it looks like next time we meet another person, we don't play it safe and we do tell them about Jesus. Maybe it means that instead of going to our nice vacation, we, we maybe go to another country and surf in some way. Maybe it means that instead of doing our weekly or monthly movie nights, maybe we go out and help the poor. Whatever Jesus tells us to do, we ought to follow. Wherever he goes, we go, right? But here's the flip side. The cross once represented defeat, but now is an image of victory. The cross once represented guilt and is now an image of grace. The cross is now, uh, once represented condemnation and is now an image of freedom. And the cross represented pain and suffering is now a symbol of healing and hope. Once we die to ourselves and give ourselves up completely to God, we will see so much healing and hope and restoration, not just for ourselves, but for other people in our lives as well, because we get to be paying part of this. We get to be part of this amazing story that God is doing of following him, creating hope, helping with healing, with freedom, with victory. All of these things, that's the symbol of the cross as well. It was death, but has been transformed into life through Jesus Christ. That is also what we get to bury, carry when we carry the cross. A fan is not concerned with any of this. A fan likes to, every now and then, take part of this, take part of a service maybe. Maybe they come for Easter or for Christmas. But they like their lives the way that they are. But a follower is completely committed to Christ and his mission. So, I'm going to ask a question. Are you not a fan? Let me pray. Father, this is a challenging thing. God, you, you don't want us to just be a fans, but you want us completely committed to follow us. And 
you want us to have a deep relationship with you. And we know that through you we can find freedom and we can find life, we can find healing and restoration, but we will also find suffering and pain at places. We will see some of the negative things, but I pray that as we go into these things, that you will give us strength, that you will give us hope, that we will boldly go into these things like the disciples in the New Testament did because we are so, so deeply connected to you, God, that we will not fear any of these, God, that, but we will trust you and we will hold on to you, God. I thank you so much for this invitation that is for anyone and for everyone, that no one is excluded, God. No, no one is left out, that if I choose you, I get you, Jesus. God, I pray that we will, we will take this challenge and that we will follow you even when the times are difficult, that we will not fear, be fearful, but we will trust you. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.